Father, we love you this afternoon. We thank you for this privilege to be together, enter into your presence, for you to speak to us, to equip us, to motivate us, and to impart to us that we might be able to be participants in your kingdom as a part of your plan and your purpose that you might be glorified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the name of Jesus, in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You may be seated. I need to deeply and humbly apologize to you. (laughs) I was a little bit out of the loop. Um, There was some confusion on the reservation for the room that we thought we had for the the to get together to eat this afternoon after this session and somehow they uh, thought we wanted it canceled and it's canceled so we don't have the room I'm sorry so at the expense of being rude I'm going to the house and lay down till tonight (laughs) right now food is not near as important to me Praise God. We are discussing um, the last portion of the sentence uh, that's contained in three verses, Acts 26, uh, 16, 17, 18, of the direct instruction that Jesus gave to Saul, later called Paul, on the road to Damascus. Very specific instructions. Instructions. They're very detailed, specific instructions, and uh, they are sequential. The f- first is necessary before you do the second, and the second is necessary before the third, and the first, second, third are necessary to see the results that are. Proclaim there, and then I'm reading that verse, <clears throat> to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Uh, again, this is Jesus talking audibly to Paul. Uh, and I'm reading, I'll just read the one translation in this session. For time's sake, uh, Weiss translation, it's called Weiss Expanded Translation of the New Testament. It's the official name, if you're interested in looking for that at some point. Uh, it reads this way, I will send you on a mission to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the authority of Satan to God. And that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith, which is in me. Praise God. The uh, the word "open" there in the Greek, in reference to their to their eyes being open, uh, the complete word study dictionary says concerning this Greek word to open. Spoken of what is closed, spoken of the eyes, to open the eyes means either one's own eyes or those of another. 
meaning to cause to see, to restore sight. Metaphorically, it means to open the eyes, uh, or to metaphorically, to open the eyes means the understanding of the mind, to cause to perceive and understand. That's pretty clear, isn't it? So the blindness is not a physical blindness. It is a blockage that prevents the mind from being able to understand. It's a blockage. Or can we say a mist, a veil that comes over the mind. And again, it is not, it does not prevent all light from coming through it. But what it does do is it prevents the ability to see anything clearly, to understand clearly, to comprehend clearly. It prevents that. Completely prevents that. Okay? And uh, Paul referred to this, and I'd like for you to put this on the screen for me, uh, I'd like to start reading with Ephesians chapter 1 verse 16, I believe. Uh, just we'll read this for con- context. So let's try 15. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. That the, this is what he was praying for. I'm praying for you, and this is what I prayed for you or about you. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. So the eyes of your understanding. Paul prayed for the saints that God would give them wisdom and uh, understanding. The eyes of their understanding would be in light. Next verse, just for reference sake. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power? Let me read 18 again and come to 19. He was praying for this, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. And what is, uh, next verse, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him in his own right hand in the heavenly places. Next verse. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, he wants you to understand where he has put you in God. Those of us that were made lower than the angels, the Lord has put us above them because of his indwelling in us. Far above all principality and power and might. Let's do 21 one more time. 20 again, sorry. which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right. That's 19 again, sorry. 
that this is a long sentence. This is one of Paul's long sentences. And what is he exceeding? He wants the eyes of our understanding to be enlightened so we can, one of the things he wants to know is what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power, next verse, which he wrought in Christ, that exceeding mighty power that he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might, dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. Where is his feet? They're connected to his body. Who is his body? The church. So if all things have been put under his feet, then all things have been put under the church. But we need a revelation, a spirit. We need the eyes of our understanding open and have the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of revelation in the knowledge of him to be given to us so we can understand who we are in God so that we can know this stuff isn't far-fetched fantasy. This is stuff we're supposed to be practicing because of who Jesus is and where he's put us in him. No, stay there, 22. And hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. Next verse. Which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. I think that's the last verse, chapter 1, isn't it? But since that's not the last of this thought, let's go to two one. And you hath he quickened which were dead, who were dead in trespasses of sin. I want to stop there. Later on, I, I forget where it is. Uh, I thought it was in chapter one, but I guess it's later where he says that we've been made to sit together in him in heavenly places and that he has already blessed us with all spiritual blessings in Christ. Now, I, I know I've ridden this horse and I'm not getting off of it till I'm done tonight, and that'll only be a break because uh, I ride this horse all the time. And I read this stuff, and then I look at how we operate as a body and as a church and as brethren on a daily basis. I don't really see a whole lot of similarity between the two. I've said it, you're probably sick of hearing already, but our focus is on having church, having good church, having a good church program, having our facilities and all set up so they impress people and, and blah. And I'm not, you know, obviously we're not going to stop having church. We're supposed to have church. And, and obviously, we need to minister to people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, the facility should look as nice as possible, et cetera. But none of that is directly related to any of this. None of that is directly related to any of this. And yet, across this country and around the world, those things are the primary focus and function of what people think a church is. 
when it's not even the focus of what we're supposed to be about. Paul didn't, the Lord didn't knock Paul off the horse and say, now I want you to, I want you to go and have good church and I want you to go start services places and have good church and I want you to preach good sermons to them and I, and I want you to buy the best building you can get and I want you to fix it up really nice so that they can all enjoy that and then I want you to, to come up with all kind of neat little programs and, and ministries so everybody's got a job and everybody will feel part. And again, I'm not saying we should stop any of that. It won't be stopped here. Has it been? But the point is, that's not our focus. And no matter how well we do those things, if we're not doing this, we're failing. We're not pleasing God. And you know something? You can't change it a church at a time. It has to be changed one individual believer at a time. So it doesn't matter how many people's in this auditorium. You're the only one that counts. And it's got to change in your heart, in your mind, in your life. Because it can't be changed as a group. It's a personal thing. In fact, in most churches in this country, if the pastor got up and tried to make a dramatic change of essentially really, really, really downplaying all that and putting the total emphasis or the, the most exclusive and focused emphasis on that, people wouldn't have much church left. Because we are way too used to being entertained. We're used to being entertained. So, He said, you are to open their eyes. And to turn them from darkness to light. The result of the eyes being opened was an immediate and decisive change or conversion. What prevented such decisive action, what, what prevented such decisive action before? Spiritual blindness. The same spirit that brought spiritual sight was the same one that brought conviction of sin and caused a desire for change. This change is by definition repentance. Uh, Vine says concerning this Greek word translated to turn, it means to make, to turn towards. Uh, in the aorist tense, in, in, it indicates an immediate and decisive change. Consequent upon a deliberate choice, conversion is a voluntary act in response to the presentation of truth. 
It's a voluntary act. Complete Word Study Dictionary says concerning this Greek word, to turn upon toward, to turn upon or convert unto, in the sense of to turn back again upon, to cause to return from error, to turn oneself upon or toward, etc. The word is also used concerning conversion. It's used in these places. Luke chapter 22, verse 32, but I have prayed for thee, Jesus said to Peter, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, same Greek word is turn them from darkness to light. Acts 3.19, repent ye and be converted, be ye turned, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. James 5 verses 19 and 20, brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, that's the word to turn. Let him know that he which converteth or turn one, the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from hell and shall hide a multitude of sins. First Peter 2.25, ye were a sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of our souls. First Peter 2.21 and 22, for it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. So the Lord uses the same word here to describe conversion going the other direction. Backsliding is really converting back to what you were. The Lord converted you or turned you from what you were to him. But when you walk away from what he's turned you to, you are turning back to or con- you are converting back to sin and being a sinner. That, that is an amazing thought right there. In other words, the backslider is not someone who is struggling to do what's right, but their desire and intent continues to be to do what's right. The righteous man falls seven times gets up again. That person isn't backslidden. Backsliding takes place when the person makes a decision to stop repenting and they turn back. If I'm going toward the Lord and I fall, but I, and I'm continually facing the Lord, I fall and I get up again and I go on and I fall and get up again. I haven't backslidden. I'm still looking at the Lord. My, that's my direction. That's where I'm still facing. But here's backsliding. I fall, and in this condition, I turn, and I go back the other direction. Wow. That, that's... Uh, <laughs> and, and, and let me read that again in the verse after it. For it, it is First Peter 2, 21 and 22. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment, to be converted from the holy commandment, delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb. The dog is turned, same Greek word. The dog is turned 
to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. And the word turned there is implied. It's not written because of redundancy. This is pretty gross, I know, and you, you might have just eaten something, and I'm sorry. But backsliding is you, the dog regurgitates whatever's making it ill, so they've been converted, so to speak. They've been freed from whatever that is. But then to turn back to that and begin to eat it, and I'm nauseated thinking about it. I wish I was kidding. Uh, cause my mind deals in pictures and I can't talk about that without seeing it. And so I'd like to go on now, if you don't mind. The problem is the dog is converted back to whatever it was they were freed from. Same thing with the, the, the sow that was washed. Pull her out of the pig pen, wash her down. But if she converts back, she goes back and gets in the mud. I will say this to you. There are two types of backsliders. I can't honestly tell you I've ever seen the one type ever restored. The first type of backslider is a person who doesn't stop acknowledging that God is true, doesn't blame their problems on the church or the preacher, but they they give up on themselves. And they just walk away and quit trying because they give up on themselves. Every backslider I've ever seen restored was in that category. But the backslider who turns doesn't take, take responsibility for their problems, their difficulties, questions the doctrine, challenges the author, spiritual authority in a church, and they turn a walk away because they don't believe the truth or they're not going to be submitted to authority, or whatever. I've never seen one of those people come back to God. I've seen some try, but they didn't get back, couldn't get back. Why? Because one failed because of flesh. The other failed because of spirit. The backslider because of flesh... That person has a very high likelihood of coming back if they can just get hope that the Lord's able to help them to, to make it this time. But the person that walks away bitter, rebellious, disobedient, questioning the doctrine whether it's true or not, Nobody's telling me what to do. I'm not listening to anybody. I'll run my own life. They don't have flesh problems. They have spirit problems. And honestly, in 42 years, I cannot name one person that I know of. 
there's not one single face in my mind, not one single name in my mind of anybody in that condition that ever made it back. And I'm not saying they didn't try to come back to church, but they never got back. They, they never made it back. I'm not saying that they never tried. Sometimes they tried because the majority of their friends were still here. Sometimes they tried because they couldn't find what they felt here anyplace else in the area. And they liked the feeling, the energy in the service. I've had some come back because they claimed that they couldn't find preaching like this anyplace else. I don't know why they were so interested in that because they didn't like the preaching when it was being preached. I don't know why I got off on that, but there we are. The Lord said that they would be turned, they would turn from darkness to light. The Greek word APO, which is a Okay, the Greek word, uh, APO, which is a preposition translated from, is only contained in Acts 26, 18, one time. As you can see from the definition included below, it speaks of moving away from or separating oneself from. Since it is only in the original once, We must therefore understand that the opening of the eyes of the blind will allow them to see and turn from both darkness to light and the authority of Satan to God. Or or the authority of Satan or Satan's authority to God's authority. It is not a turning from two different things, but from one thing expressed two different perspectives. From two different perspectives by simultaneous concepts. Turning from darkness to light is synonymous to being delivered from the authority of darkness to God's authority. Praise God. From. From. Now, I I wrote that. But I don't know, standing here right this minute, I totally agree with what I wrote a year ago. Because in my personal experience of prayer, I have experienced a difference at times. I, I totally agree at times the prayer, the warfare, the binding and loosing, the intercessor prayer, whatever, it accomplished essentially both those things at one time. But I have been involved in situations and with individuals at times that it really seemed to be two different things. That they first had to, to go from darkness to light in their understanding, 
with the darkness taken away, and then they came to understanding before they would be willing to be delivered from the authority of Satan into the authority of God. I, I have to first have some idea what's wrong with me before I'm willing to submit to the cure. If you walk into a doctor's office and he looks at you and said, uh, I, I need you to go to the hospital right now. I'm going to do surgery on you uh, by 6 o'clock tonight. And that's what he said. What are you going to say? Why? Shed some light on the reasons that you have concluded I need surgery like this so quickly. Now, I'm not contradicting God. I'm contradicting myself here. Because when I wrote that portion last year, I was of the opinion that was the case. I do believe that can be true in some situations. But it it really does, when I was teaching earlier today, and even yesterday when I started on this, I really, really did feel like that it needs to be treated as three steps unless it happens otherwise. I mean, God can do it any way he wants to. I mean, the scripture says, repent, be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for remission of sins, and you shall receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. But myself and many others that I know of, we got the Holy Ghost before we are baptized. So why it says it like that, it's not in violation of the scripture if the order is somewhat changed. So while in the literal sense of it, it may be that one is actually accomplishing the other, I do personally believe from experience uh, that as I have been teaching it this week and thinking about it, uh, I really do believe that there, it, it, the cautious thing to do would be approach it as two different things. And then as you're warring, if both those things happen simultaneously, just be thankful for it. Because your mind, your spirit, your life, having that opacity removed so that now you can see clearly. To me, for many people, it would be for me. Because I, I've said to you already, uh, it was noted to me by a preacher. He said, you know, I, I, I've observed that you won't do anything that you think you're, do or speak, do anything or speak anything that you think you're hearing or feeling unless you're sure that it is supported by the word of God. And so you can take that however you want to, but I have to have some light on something before I'm willing to give myself to it. I don't believe there's any such thing as blind faith. And I'm not going to participate in blind faith. Not going to do it. Never have. I trust God. And, and I, I really believe that if I would have been in that situation where Peter was, I, I, I want to believe that if he spoke to me, 
And I knew it was him to get out of that boat that I'd get out and try. I'd like to believe that. Well, I have. Frankly, you know, I don't mean this in a negative way. I I would trade getting out of the boat trying to walk on water over what I had to do any day. I stood out in this median in the summer of 1976. We had a little church building that God had miraculously given us. And we, we had a $295 a month church payment. And I was having to take a special offering every month just to be able to cover that mortgage. And I woke up one day and was in prayer. And God said to me, go out to them. We'll give you a piece of property. And we'd been looking and looking. And we couldn't find anything we could afford. And I'm standing in the median right out in front of this building on this highway with a realtor. And he's showing me this piece of property, 30-plus acres and all this frontage and all this kind of stuff. And and I'm having to take a special offering to make a $295 a month church payment. And it was ideal. It was perfect. This property was. But there was no way. And I said, well, what's he want for it? He said, $189,000. Well, it might as well have been a $189 million. I couldn't. There was no way we could do that. And I remember starting to turn away from him. And it was, it was, it was about to come out of my mouth. Thank you very much, but we, we can't afford this. And the voice of the Lord said to me, tell him you'll take it. Tell him to offer $150,000 and tell him the man's going to come back and counter with 165 and you're going to, you're going to agree to buy it for $165,000. Tell him we, we hadn't had any money in the bank and just, just that weekend, out of clear blue, somebody put a $1,000 check in the offering. We thought we were absolutely rolling in dough at that moment. And the Lord says, tell him you'll give him $1,000 with the contract. And at settlement, you'll give him another $10,000. And tell and the deal is, tell him that you, you want the seller to carry the rest of that purchase price as a mortgage at 7%. And that we'll give him $2,000 a month payment. All this goes, it just goes through my mind. I'm not a realtor. I, I, I wasn't trained to be in business. All this stuff goes through my mind. And I'm going, I don't really want to do this. I, the pressure of just trying to raise his $295 a month church payment has really been frustrating me. And, I, and I'm going to, I'm going to make this kind of commitment. I turned to him and I said, uh, We'll take it. And I told him exactly what I just said to you. I want you to write up a contract. I'm offering him $150,000. $150, he's going to, co- he's going to counter down from 189 to 165. And I said, I want him to carry the mortgage at 7%. We'll pay him. That was a good rate then. And, uh, and, and we'll pay him two, $2,000 a month. I'll give you $1,000 earnest money with the contract and we'll give him $10,000 at settlement. The guy looked at me and said, you don't understand. There's three parcels of ground here, and any one of them is worth that much. But he and his wife, he won't retire, and he and his wife are getting divorced, and they got to sell this and split the money. That's the only reason he's selling it all together. That's the only reason he's asking such little money for it. I said, sir, 
Are you not, are you a real estate agent? Yes, sir. Are you not legally obligated as my agent, and you agree to be my agent, to offer, to write up and present any contract that I want to submit? He kind of got quiet a second and said, yes, sir, I am obligated. I said, then you go to your office and write that up. I'm going to the house to get the check. I'll meet you back there and sign the contract. We did. About three days later, he called me up and said, uh, well, uh, he countered. How much? 165000 I said, tell him we'll take it. Slight problem. I didn't have $10,000. And when we went to settlement, our payment was going to jump from $295 a month that we couldn't pay to $2,295 a month that I didn't have any idea how we'd be able to pay. It's a long story, and I won't go any farther with it, but, um, well, just this little bit. It was the last day of the 90 days, and we didn't have the $10,000. And I called the agent, and I said, I'd like for you to ask him to give me a 30-day extension. And... uh We'll have the $10,000 then. He said, I don't think he's going to do it. I said, well, you, I'm asking you to ask him. So he called the guy and the guy said, yeah, I'll give him 30 more days. We were to go to settlement at 5 o'clock in the evening on that 30 days after that. And I put a check in the bank at 4 o'clock for $10,000. Went to settlement and wrote the $10,000. And that $10,000 came from a lady. We had knocked on her door. She never got baptized. Never, never received the Holy Ghost. But my, when we knocked on her door, my wife was pregnant with David. And when she saw that my wife was expecting, she threw the door open and said, you two come in here. What are you doing out walking around in that condition? And she fixed us some food and she treated us like that. In fact, when David was born, she gave us the only baby shower we had. Uh, she did all that stuff. And when she found out we were trying to buy this property, she said, I got a little money. I'll loan it to you. So she loaned us the $10,000 and she never got baptized, never got saved, never came to our church faithfully. And for the next six months after settlement, that $2,000, this is the truth before God, that $2,000 came in the mail. Every month for six months from a different source every time. And none of those people knew we needed it. Now that's walking on the water. (laughs) Woo. (laughs) Uh. (laughs) I wish I could tell you. I was calm and confident all the time. But he never sent that check in the mail early. Never one time. It always got there just a day or two before it was due. (laughs) Never, not one time did it get there early so I could breathe. Not one time. Not one time. It got there every time. It was like a day or two beforehand. And uh praise God. Oh, hallelujah. 
We paid that $2,000 a month for six years before we were ever able to build anything here. <laughs> Hallelujah. I don't know why I told you all that. Uh, there has to be a willingness on our part to believe. But faith is the substance to think hope for, the evidence of things not seen, not seen with a natural eye. There has to be a seeing. Jesus said this, this way. He said, whatever I see my father do, that's what I do. He said, the son can do nothing of himself. Whatever, whatever he sees the father do, that's what he does. Now, if you're blind, you can't see that. So let, let, let me paraphrase what he was saying. In prayer, he would see himself do this or do that. And he knew what he was seeing was the Father working through him. And so whenever that situation that he would saw in prayer presented itself from before him, he knew what to do. He just did what he saw. And I'm paraphrasing here too. But whatever the father told him to say, he said. Now I got a question. If you're, it, it, you, you go to church, you're faithful to God. You're obeying the doctrine. You got baptized. Uh, you tried to repent, got baptized and you, you, you managed somehow to make enough noise that you and whoever's praying with you concluded you were filled with the Holy Ghost. But bottom line is you still have most of the vestiges of blindness left in your life. How can, how can you walk with God? You know, I've said this so many times, and I probably already said it this week, I'm say, I, I'm, and I'm saying it again right now. God is a spirit. And you cannot fellowship with God without being involved with the supernatural. That little church bill I told you about this morning that, that we got that was built by Jehovah Witnesses, we tried to buy that building. They wanted Jehovah Witnesses building a bigger building out on the highway, and uh, this one was over downtown Annapolis on a back street and uh, they wanted $15,000 and we didn't have it and we couldn't buy it. But there was this uh, Nazarene pastor in town had been there and he was highly respected in town. He was really a great guy. And uh, there were people in his church that were uh, received the Holy ghost in the early seventies and they were speaking in tongues. And this man was both a, a Greek and a Hebrew scholar. And he went back and studied the book of Acts in the Greek uh, and came to the conclusion that speaking in tongues was for us today. Well, the Nazarenes don't believe in speaking in tongues, so his church board called him in and said, you know, there's people in the churches talking in tongues. And he said, I'm aware of that. And they said to him, well, we want you to stop it. And he said, you know, I've been studying this. I've been trying to share this with you, and this is in the Bible. And they said, but we don't believe in it. 
And he tried to talk to them, and they finally said, well, if you are, if you're not going to put them out, you leave with them. And he'd been pastor there like 15, 20 years. And so he said, okay, I'll go. Well, there was a, about a third of the, the people that left with him because they wanted that. And some other people that collected with him. And so that group got together and formed a church, and they were able to come up with the $15,000. To buy that building we couldn't buy. Well, about a year after all of that, I was praying one day. The Lord said, go see Pastor Grimes. And I went by his house. He was very cordial, very kind. And I I told him, I said, I was praying praying for you this morning. The Lord told me to come talk to you. And uh, and I said, I I know that you have... uh, yeah, I, I've heard and understand that you have seen in Scripture speaking in tongues is accurate. I said, has this happened to you yet? He said, not yet, but I'm I'm seeking for it. I said, okay. I said, but there's some other things I'd really like to share with you just for you to study for yourself. And I, I talked to him about the oneness of God and how that connected to baptism, that baptism should be in the name of Jesus, and, and these things were necessary for salvation. He never argued with me. He never even asked any questions. He just sat and listened. And I wasn't sure if he was just being polite or if he was really focusing. And I got through and I said, uh, do you have any questions? He said, no, I don't think I do. Uh, but I, I promise you I will go and study this. And so uh, we shook hands and, and I left. Well, it was probably six months later. I was praying. The Lord said, go see Pastor Grimes. I wish I'd have had a tape recorder. I have never heard he used the Hebrew and the Greek rather than the English Bible. And I have never heard taught by any human being of any organization a clearer, more biblically sound lesson on the oneness of God than that man taught that day. I just I was the one sitting to listen that day. And he also said he'd gotten a revelation of baptism in Jesus' name. Well, his wife... They, you know, they knew a little bit about us and his wife didn't want to have any part of this and our standards and all that stuff. But he started preaching the oneness of God and baptism of Jesus name to his church. Well, they all got upset with him and they left. And that building, that, that group was down to a very small number of people. So I got a call one day and, uh, no, we were renting a building that was a former restaurant. And the, I got a note from the owner that said, uh, you know, this, the county, the city has said this building's not zoned for a church and you got 30 days to move out. Well, I didn't know what I was going to do. So I, 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 I got that note when I showed up to build it for prayer and I started praying and I'd been praying a couple of hours and this guy called who was a, uh, he was a, a barber. But I baptized him and his wife and all of his kids. They all got the Holy Ghost. His name was Rudy Leone. But he didn't want to come to church because he also didn't want to live by what we were teaching. But he, he was very, he was very kind and very, very, uh, he, he, he loved me and he loved, and he, and he believed our truth as far as the salvation message was, but they didn't want our lifestyle. But he called me and said, Hey, I heard, I don't know if you've heard this or not. But, uh, uh, Faith Chapel, that was the name of the church Pastor Grimes was, had formed. He said, Faith Chapel has fallen apart because he started preaching the stuff you preach and they all left him. 
And uh, I don't know what's going to happen with that building. Why don't you call Pastor Grimes and see if they'll sell you the building? Well, I had just gotten notice we had to move out. So I called, uh, called Pastor Grimes. I said, uh, I, under, I understand you guys may be closing your church down. He said, oh, yeah. He said, they didn't want what God showed me. I said, okay. I said, what, what are you going to do with the building? We'd like to, to, to buy it. He said, you know, I'm going to have to get back with you on that. Can you give me a couple of days? I said, sure. It was about two or three days later. He called me and said, uh, I can't sell you the building, but I'll give it to you. He said, as you know, a nonprofit corporation in the state of Maryland cannot disband and the assets of that corporation be dispersed to individuals. So all of our assets have to be dispersed to another nonprofit. And he said, I can't think of anybody else I'd rather have this building. Huh. That was the first building we ever owned. It was the first piece of property we ever owned. Uh, the only communion set we have ever owned in 42 years was included in that building. There was a vacuum cleaner, a PA system. There were Bibles, uh, pews. Uh, no, I don't know. It was all kind of stuff. He just gave me the key and turned over everything in it. That was, but we had to take over the mortgage. They had put $15,000 down and been paid on it a couple of years. And the bank agreed to let us take over the mortgage just like that. So it was essentially the same as somebody giving us $20,000. But you see, again, there has to be the ability to see. There has to be, you, you can't separate revelation and wisdom and understanding from sight. And if you're blind or you're opaque, you can't see your need. You can't see what you need to do. You can't see the change. You can't see how you can change. There has to be something happen to accomplish that. And I have no question in my mind that there are people who have come to our church over the years. And they repent the best they know how. And we water baptize them. And they get some kind of limited experience with the Holy Ghost. And, and, and you know, you know what's happening on their mouth is supernatural. But somewhere deep in your spirit, you know that they never really got any real liberty. There's no fluency to the tongues. But it's a starting point and you hope that they will go farther. But looking back on it right now, in my opinion, those people never were delivered of their blindness. They couldn't see. No matter what you preached to them, no matter what kind of move of God there was, they couldn't see. When people can't see and they try to obey, they're doing what the preacher says. But when people can see and God speaks and they receive that and they can see it, they can spiritually see it or perceive it or understand it. They have spiritual sight. They can see it. Then when they obey, they're not doing it because the preacher said it or because the church believes it. Now they're doing it because 
It's what they see. It's what they believe. And no matter how nice the person is, if they are not completely delivered of their blindness, you really can't lead them and you really can't pastor them. Can't do it. And the big challenge is, and it's, we've always had, this has always happened. You have some people who come from another kind of church and they get some measure of an understanding or hunger or whatever and then they come this direction. And they don't, they become a part, but they don't really change. And because they have been Christians, they come in and they expect you to put them right into places of authority and use them. And you're really, as a pastor, stuck at a very difficult spot because you don't want to, you don't want to insult them, but you know they don't see. And they're still inconsistent with what you teach and preach. But in their minds, they've made a commitment to you. They've made a commitment to this church. They've made a commitment to what you're preaching. But they're not really living what you're preaching. But they came out of places where they were involved. And had a certain spiritual standing. And they come expecting to be slid into something similar to that. And you got a problem. What do you do with that problem? And we are, you know, we mean well. We do mean well. And, and, and we, we're, we really do want to see something happen. And we really do want to see people saved. And, and it's possible to learn how to get people in the building and how to manipulate their emotions and how to get them in the altar and how to walk them through the basics of receiving the Holy Ghost and them have some kind of spiritual experience even though it's not truly a full baptism of the Holy Ghost. And again, you're in a tough spot because you want them to keep going forward, so you have to acknowledge that they are at some point without crushing where they are because you hope, pray, that they will continue to move forward, but they don't. They don't because they don't see. Whatever reason they came to church, it wasn't because they saw. Whatever reason they got out of their seat and came down front, emotion or being pressured or being encouraged by a friend or whatever, it wasn't because they saw. And whatever they experienced, uh, it might have been valid up to the point where it actually was, but it did not take them into a full liberty of conversion experience because they didn't really see 
And we wonder what the problem is. And it's because we skipped this stuff Jesus told Paul to do. Skipped it. And I'll tell you what, over the, over the years, there have been times, you know, we, we, we normally have some kind of prayer that's not just taking a prayer request where there are needs and we have the believers pray one for another and, and those kind of prayer meetings where it's kind of unobtrusive or in an altar service where everybody's come up front. I've, I've done this. I've done this even with people who didn't know I was doing it. I'd feel led to go to somebody and I'd put my hands on their head. And I began to pray that spirit of darkness off of them because I, I sensed it was still there and they hadn't been limited, liberated. I didn't announce it. I never told them what I was doing. But when I've done it, I was led to do it and I did it, I saw a change in their lives. How can two walk together except they be agreed? How can I walk with God if I can't see what it is he's trying to say, what he's wanting me to do? How can I? So he said that they should be turned from light to darkness and from the power of Satan to the power of God. Now, Every sinner, if you'll put on the screen for me, Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Every sinner is under the power of Satan to some degree. I didn't say they're possessed. Here it is. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, verse 2. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, According to the prince of the power of the air, here's, here's what that is. The prince of the power of the air is the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Next verse. Among whom also we had all, we all had our conversation, our conduct. I read this already this week, but I'm reading it again. Conversation in the Greek there, the word translated conversation is more lifestyle, your, your daily conduct. It includes not just what you say, but what you think, how you act, how you look, what you do. We all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Now go back to verse 1. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. That is a spiritually synonymous way of saying you were blind. One talks about your spiritual life. The other talks about your spiritual perception or understanding. It's the same thing. So go back to three again. Among whom also we had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh of the mind, and whereby, and were by nature the children of wrath, either as others. Next verse. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together by, with Christ, by grace you are saved. 
and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There's that verse I was looking for a while ago. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward, toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is a gift of God. Not of works lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. That verse right there completely blows out of the water. Any interpretation of the preceding verses that we're saved by grace and we don't have to do anything to be saved. The discussion is about doing or is not about doing or not doing something. The, the whole conversation is about what you're doing and why you're doing it. Because this verse clearly proves that God's intent in saving us is that we've been, we, we're being recreated, if I can put it that way. It says created, but this is not talking about people coming into existence from nothing, but coming from darkness to light, coming from natural into a supernatural dimension. Create or recreated in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. That proves right there that God expects change and he expects us to do certain things that we weren't doing and to stop doing some things that we were doing. And all of that is evidence of our salvation. And without that, we don't have any evidence of our salvation. That's why James said, Faith without works is dead being alone. So what works is it that we're not saved by? We're not saved by our own good works that are done with the motive of attempting to get God to approve of us by the good we do. Obedience to the word of God is not good works by that definition. This is talking about people that try to go out and do good things to get God to obligate them to save them because they've, they're good. Well, there's none good, no, not one. I can't do enough good to become good. Therefore, I can't be saved by my good works. But I am saved by grace, by the grace of God. And the grace of God empowers me to do the works that God has ordained for me to do. The moment somebody says to you that we're, we don't, we're saved by grace and not by works and we don't have to do anything to be saved, that person has confessed to you their blindness. Biblical grace is so far the opposite of that. Biblical grace is the Spirit of God empowering us to do what we cannot do of ourselves or by ourselves for ourselves and it's done without us ever being worthy to have him empower us to do it or having deserved it and we didn't earn it it's his grace is his love causing his spirit to empower us and enable us to do what we can't do any other way that's grace so therefore if i'm saved by grace I'm not saved 
by a license that says you don't have to change and you can live any way you want to and you're going to be saved. But I'm saved by grace because I cannot of myself do anything good or right. But God's grace empowers me to do what pleases God, what he's ordained for me to do. But I, off the subject half a second here, the earlier part of this is so clear. People who are in sin are under the influence of the spirit of disobedience. They're under the power of Satan. Now, some are more under the power of Satan than others. Some have demonic influence in their life. Some are oppressed. Some have demonic influence in their life. And some are even so far as they are possessed. What is, what does it mean to be biblically possessed? You are not biblically possessed of the devil until demonic spirits reside in your spirit. The scripture says, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. So God's spirit, the spirit of the almighty creator God, when, when we become his in the New Testament, his spirit occupies our spirit. Satan, who wants to be like God, his ultimate goal is for him or his minions to possess or dwell in your spirit like God's spirit is intended to dwell in your spirit. I can have demonic activity and influence in my life, even strongly, without me being possessed biblically. So I got a question. How do people even decide to be saved if they're the un- under the authority of Satan? They can't rescue themselves. They can't free themselves. How do they do that? Somebody has to pray that power off of them. And here's binding and loosing. You're loosing them. You're binding that, that first authority and power. And you're commanding it to loose them. And you're loosing God's authority and power to come upon them and begin to influence them towards salvation. Binding and loosing. Two ways. That's what our job is. That's why, except a man be born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Right? But that's also why, under thee, I give the keys of the kingdom. Except the man's born of water and the spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. And under thee, I give the keys, Matthew 16, 19. Under thee, I give the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So, so if, 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 the, if the lost are needing to be born again to enter into the kingdom, then does it not make sense that I need keys to set them free from whatever it is they're bound in and to open the door to the kingdom for them? Doesn't that make sense? Then why don't we do it? Why don't 
You say, well, Jesus didn't tell Paul to do that. Oh, yeah, he did. He told him the objective. He told him the purpose. He told him the goal. No, he didn't describe at that point all of the methodologies for accomplishing it. But he told him. And we read earlier today, Luke chapter 1, with Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, prophesying that that was what the son was going to come to do. And we read Isaiah. I want to read that again. Listen to this. Listen to this. I want to read that again. Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thy hand and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles. And here's what, here's what the light of the Gentiles is going to do. To open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison. Now, doesn't that sound like figurative language for somebody coming out of or being liberated from the power of Satan to, to the power of God? Or as Paul said in another place, that we would be translated from the power of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. That's what the transition is. So he says, you're going to be a covenant for the people, for a light of the Gentiles, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. And notice, he just equated being in darkness with being in prison. It's our calling. It's our job. He was only here approximately 33 years to do it in person. We, we, we got to get this through our heads. While Jesus was on earth, he was the Christ. But the only part of Christ that left this earth was the head. The body of Christ is not in heaven. While Christ walked this earth, He was Christ's body, head, body, hands, feet. He was, all of that was Christ. But when he died, was resurrected, at that point, from that point on, the only part of Christ that went to heaven was the head. Because the body of Christ is still here on the earth. So, so we go to the scripture. We go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we saw, we see how the body cooperated with the head then. I mean, there were times that the, that the head said do it and the body would reach out and touch something. Pray for somebody. I mean, he got upset with the, with the apostles. They were actually at that point still called disciples one day because they wouldn't let the little children come. He rebuked him. He said, suffer the little children coming to me for such is the kingdom of God. And he put his hands on their head and blessed them. But there's so many churches today that don't have any interest in ministering to children, especially those that aren't connected to families that are 
capable of coming to the church and being a blessing to us financially and otherwise. Because it's just a bunch of kids. And probably kids from someplace poor. And they can't do anything for us. And they can't help us. And he said, suffer the little children, not the little rich kids. He said, suffer the little children to come unto me. For of such is the kingdom of God. And the body of Christ put his hands on those children and blessed them. But we don't want them in our building because they'll mess our building up. I believe in doing stuff decently in order. But at the same time, it's our real problem that we, that they're disturbing our service. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. No. You want to know what the body of Christ is supposed to be doing? Look what the body of Christ did in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the only part of Christ that went to heaven is the head. How can, how can the Bible say that we've been made to sit together in heavenly places when we're still here? I've used this example, forgive me, but I'm obeying God. If I'm standing in water, swimming pool, ocean, lake, whatever it is, in water up to my neck, here I'm standing in the water, my head is out of the water. Well, what is it in? It's in air. From the neck down, the rest of my body is in the water. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm an air breather. And I can put my head under the water, but I'm not going to keep it there very long. At the Naval Academy, I had to learn to swim because sailors are supposed to be able to swim. And they taught us to crawl or in competitions called freestyle. And they taught us the side stroke and they taught us the the breast stroke and they taught us the back stroke. I I learned to swim all three of those. I never learned to swim the other because I didn't like it. Because to swim the crawl, you had to have your face in the water. I didn't like my face in the water. On two occasions, I had to swim an entire mile in clothes, everything but my shoes, in order, well, first of all, the first time to graduate from the Naval Academy, the second time to graduate from flight school. And I promise you, I swam almost the whole way, either side stroke or back stroke, because I don't like my face in the water. Well, I'm an air breather. So, I get in the water, I'm okay with it up to here. I don't really like it higher than there. But I know this one thing, that standing in the water with it up to my neck doesn't separate my head from my body. There's no disconnect between my head and my body just because my body's standing in the water up to the neck. Why is there a disconnect between Christ's head and Christ's body? Because the head's in the spiritual dimension and the body's in the natural. Why is the body of Christ acting like the environment it's in 
rather than acting like the environment where the head is. Is that what it means when he says he's already blessed us with all spiritual blessings in Christ? And that because he's been made the head of all things, that he's ahead of all things and all things are under his feet? Yet we're told in a couple of places, men, uh, Abraham was told, I'm going to give you all this land, but if you want it, you got to go put the soles of your feet on it. You got to take some actions to claim it. So, We have to do that. These people cannot set themselves free. You know, it's like looking at a drug addict and saying, why don't you stop using drugs? Can't you see you're destroying yourself? You're kidding, right? Look at an alcoholic and saying, why do you drink? Can't you see you're destroying your family? Why do you do that? Why don't you just suck it up and stop? That's real easy to do when you're not the one with the problem. Easy to say. Oh, man, in my younger, much more stupid years, to stand in a pulpit and imply that somebody could just stop sinning because they decide to. The only thing deciding does is it releases God to set us free because he cannot violate our wills. But what happens if a person's so in darkness that they don't even believe they have a power to choose or they don't know there's anything to choose? Don't don't we have some obligation the Bible says we're not debtors to the flesh to live after the flesh but Paul said I'm a debtor I'm a debtor I'm a debtor to all those people that have not received what I've been given now if I earned what I've got If I deserve what I've got, if I've been declared worthy and that's why I have been awarded what I've got, then I don't have any reason to feel that way. But if I know that I can't take credit for the fact I'm saved, that, that I can't, I I can't get the, take the glory for it, that I, that there is no way that I can boast about what I've done, but this has been done By the love of God, and a lot of it's been done with me kicking and screaming at times, resisting it. That makes me a debtor. And I have to admit to you, that's a little more difficult for people that were raised in this. At least a person who wasn't raised in it, they got experience with both worlds. 
But people that were raised in this or essentially raised in this, there's not the same feeling of, it's not normal or, or it's not natural. It's not, not common for them to have a pronounced sense of the fact that we're not worthy of this. I mean, theoretically now, theoretically speaking, I could have been born to any man and woman of any race in any economic circumstance of any faith on any continent in the world. But somebody, not my mom and dad, because they may have created, they may have been involved in that which brought egg and sperm together to create my body. But the Bible says of Adam, God created man out of the dust of the earth and he breathed into his nostrils and then man became a living soul. So my mom and dad didn't create my soul. They might have come together and been the, 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 the father and mother of my body. But that's just the place where my soul would be housed. God alone is the creator of my soul. And he's the one that put it in this body. And presumably, he could have put this soul in just about any body, any place in this world. Born to any two people. Because they are, that my soul is not automatically connected to this body from a creative standpoint. Because my mom and dad cannot be given credit for me coming into existence. The body, maybe. The soul, absolutely not. I got a question. I look back on my life. And I've already told you, I've never known anything but this. I've never had a cigarette in my mouth. To my knowledge, I've never drink, had a, a drink of alcohol ever in my life. Never wanted one. Never even wanted to experiment with one. I've never used drugs illicitly. I, I, I haven't even liked when I was medically prescribed some kind of painkiller after a surgery. I don't like it. I don't like what it does to me. I've never experienced any of that stuff. I've never been a, a serial uh, uh, dater. And uh, I've never been a swinger. I've never been involved in all that stuff. Never been in that. I wasn't in any of that. I was raised in this. The first Sunday of life I was in a church service. I've never known anything but uh, the preaching of the word of God and worship and the spirit of God. Never known anything else but. But the question is, why me? That decision was made before I ever had a chance to earn anything. Before I ever had the, the chance to demonstrate I was worthy of it. Why me? What makes me so much better than the person that's, that, that, that's, that's raised in some, born and raised in some kind of situation where everything you can imagine is working against them ever finding even a small amount of what I've experienced in God or know about God? Everything's working against them. Why me rather than them? 
Well, if I can't take credit for it, and I can't attribute it to my worthiness or my goodness, then don't I have to come to some understanding that I've got some obligation to understand not the randomness of it, of it, but the purpose of it? And don't I have some responsibility in at least participating and giving them a chance to find and experience what I was born to? And yet, and yet, Churches I've been in around this country, both as a child at home, a, a part of a Navy family and growing up and then, and then, uh, traveling and preaching and, and all, all of that and both in this country and around the world. It's just amazing that the hardest people to motivate are the ones that are raised in it. It just don't see and feel the need and yet the book says to whom much is given much is required much is given much is required I mean I I wasn't just given the truth I wasn't just given the baptism of the Holy Ghost I wasn't just given a knowledge of God from a young age I wasn't just given spiritual experiences with the true God of heaven and earth, the living God, from a young age. I was put in a family, even though it was connected to the military, maybe because it was connected to the military, I never questioned where the next meal was coming from. I never questioned if I was going to be taken care of. I, I, I never questioned my safety at home. I never questioned any of that. I was born to a mom and dad who loved each other and were married over 50 years when my dad passed away. I could go on and on and on. Given a wife by God, specifically chosen for him by me. Given two sons, miraculously both of them. Called, called out of a natural career to be a part of a a spiritual calling. Why? Me. Well, unless I come up with the right answer, unless I'm no longer personally blind, you see, because this is one of the worst places for blindness. Those that are raised in the church and the assumption that's made, they're automatically not blind because they were raised in the church. But why is it so many of those that are raised in the church backslide because we try to get them in the water and get them filled with the Holy Ghost while they're still blind. And they're the ones that lead the religious movement. People that had nothing spiritually. And by the mercy and grace of God, they're led to this that's alive, vibrant, powerful. That's what they were born into. 
They're never going to be satisfied with it. They may have to put up with it for a while, but they're not going to be satisfied with that because they, they've tasted what was dead. And, and they, they came into something that was alive. They're not going to be happy with that. But people raised in the church, it's really easy for them to accept whatever they were raised in. If they were raised in deadness, that's the norm. We don't need anything else. I'm not picking on people raised in the church. I are one. But the point I'm making to you is, I look back. I was I was going to go to Bible school. I I I just I was being torn apart. I I I part of me wanted to go to the Naval Academy and 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 I committed to God and and I surrendered my life to Him and I knew I was called and I was going to go to Bible school and and I didn't know what to do and. And my Sunday school teacher, who was a very, he was in the military, was a very wise man. He said, well, I'll tell you what. Why don't you just put it, put God to the test? It's a lot harder to get at the Naval Academy, this Bible school. So why don't you pray about it, give it to God, and see what he does. Because if you don't get in the Naval Academy, you can always go to the Bible school. Well, he miraculously, and that's another story, he miraculously got me in the Naval Academy. It didn't make any sense, except that it's more added in my debt. Because if I'd have gone to Bible school, it's very possible I would have been content the way I was raised, what I was. I sure wouldn't have gotten debates about the the, the plan of salvation in Bible school with somebody. You would expect not. I wouldn't have found truth for myself. I wouldn't have found a depth and a reality and a passion for the lost in Bible school more than likely that I found on my own in the Naval Academy. But of course, we know that the number of apostolic kids that go to secular college, that the percentage of them that backslide is 70 plus percent. And in some places, it's 80 to 90 percent of the ones that go to a secular college that backslide out of good old apostolic Pentecostal church services or churches. So you would think that the Lord was putting me in a very vulnerable place because I not only was put in a, in a, in a secular college, I was put someplace where there was no church anywhere nearby and I never had a pastor. All of those things seems negative. It looked like he was, I was a sacrificial lamb. I don't want you, don't care about you, you're gone. I'm putting you out there so you're not going to make it. But he used all of those environments to turn that whole thing around and do something completely different in my life that would have maybe never been done any other way. Now I got a question. Is my obligation to speak things that are smooth for people to hear so they can feel comfortable doing what they've always done, what I was taught, what I grew up doing? Or do I have an obligation? To speak what I'm seeing, even though it makes the people in my category, raised in the church, very uncomfortable. What am I to do? Am I debtor? I got an, I don't, I, I don't just have a debt to the lost because I was given all this blessing. I didn't deserve any of it. I mean, I've preached in Africa. I've preached in the villages in Africa. Some of those kids have never owned a pair of shoes in their life. Their houses have dirt floors. 
I've, pr- I've prayed hundreds of people through the Holy Ghost in those villages. And yet I look at those adults and, and, and it, it, some of those guys I've had a chance to have interaction with, some of the sweetest, purest, since, most sincere people you'll ever meet in your life. Why were they born there with that color skin when my soul ended up born over here in this color skin? Why? Why? Well, I was born over here. I could have easily been born to a parent, to parents who were atheists. Easily. A lot of kids have been. Why? Don't I have some obligation? Isn't there some responsibility? I think there's a verse that fits here, and you've already quoted it to yourself. To whom much is given, much will be required. You know why? You know what really made Paul Paul? In that dirt that day, when he realized how wrong he was. And at some point in that moment, or over the next few days, as it began to dawn on him, how merciful God had been. He deserved, and God would have easily been justified, frying his hide, wiping him out, destroying him in a moment's time with a bolt of lightning. The Lord could have done that and could have, and would have, would have been pure and honest and good and holy and just. And you, there would have been no fault God, you could lay at God's feet for destroying Paul. As Saul. And yet somewhere in this, Saul began to realize what God could have done. And what God didn't do. And then the extreme to which God went. To set him on the right path. To give him the right purpose. And that motivated him to give it his absolute all. Then my question is, if we're not doing that, is it possible we're sitting on seats in apostolic church services and we're still blind? Not trying to insult you, offend you. Not trying to find fault. Just trying to challenge you. I've been a student of Bible prophecy for a while. Again, questions I wanted to answer I talked about yesterday. I got questions I want answers. And he promised me all truth. And what, and, Prophecy is truth, and so I want no prophecy. I want no truth. I don't want, I'm not, don't have a loyalty to any position. I just want to know what the Bible actually says. I mean, the rapture can't take place at the beginning, beginning, the middle, and the end of tribulation. It's got to be one of those. Right? If one of those is true, the other two is not. I just want truth. Right? So, I, I, you know, I'm studying this stuff. 
I want to know this stuff. I want to be able to give myself to this stuff. I want to be able to preach truth. Right? So you you seek and you pray and you study and you test. I've been given something. You've been given something. What what are we going to do about it? I want truth. But can I receive truth and then not be responsible for truth? How can I not speak what God says? One One of the accusations or one of the condemnations the Lord gave uh, through the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, that they hold the truth in unrighteousness. Romans 1. They hold the truth in unrighteousness. You know what that word hold there means literally? Suppress. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What does that mean? You don't tell people what you know because you don't want them upset with you. You don't rock their world. You don't challenge their worlds. You suppress it. You know this, but you preach the, preach this to them. You've seen this, but you, you're not going to tell them that. No, I'm going to tell them this over here. I had a preacher one time, an elder, man I greatly respected. In fact, he was the man who was in charge of the service the day I was ordained. And he was one of the ones who put hands on me when I was ordained. And uh, he and I were talking one day, and I, I wanted him to tell me what he saw, good and bad, because I, I needed to know. He, and he told me some things, and he said, the one thing that a lot of people don't understand about Chester Wright is, and he's kind of talking in third person here with me sitting there, he said, he doesn't have this little signal or bell when he has a thought come into his mind that says, you know, I shouldn't say that like that. Maybe there's a better way of saying that. And he meant it that, you know, you don't really have it, but it probably would be easier on you and everybody else that listens when you talk if you did have it. Probably better if you had it. And he didn't say that. I just assumed that's what he was saying. But I'm going to tell you something right now. I have spent my entire life in ministry seeking to hear and repeat. That's my goal, hear and repeat, hear and repeat, hear and repeat, hear and repeat. So my question to you is, do I need a bell that tells me when God says something to me, you better edit what God said so it's less offensive to people. I mean, I've sought for truth. He's given me truth. All truth... Hopefully not. I got a lot of questions aren't answered, so I hope I don't have all truth, but I got some truth. I know I have some truth. I've sought for it. He promised it. I got some. So now I'm going to edit that truth so that it's palatable. 
the flesh. I have an obligation to myself and a respect I need to show to the truth I've been given. To not change what I've been given, tone it down, undo it, withhold it. So, you know, I, I, I agree. I agree in principle, I think, that we shouldn't go to our relatives and just blow them away with the word of God. We shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't walk up to our coworkers desk and say, do you know you're going to hell if you hadn't been baptized in Jesus name and filled with the Holy Ghost speaking in tongues? In principle, I think I agree that that shouldn't be the approach, but do you know how many people I've pastored in all these years that used that as a, an excuse to keep their mouth shut and not say anything? So, He said to Paul, I'm almost done. I've called you for this purpose, made you a minister and a witness. Called you out of their midst put you, to put you back in it for this purpose, to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light and from the power or the authority of Satan unto God. And when you do that, this is where they're going to get to. That for this cause, to this end, for this purpose that they may receive forgiveness of sins and this is what you can't have till after you get forgiveness of sins. You can't get forgiveness of sins till these, these first three things happen, whether they happen simultaneously, uh, one, one and then two at a time or two and then one or, uh, one progressively one at a time. Those three things happen. Then you can get forgiveness of sins and then you can have the last thing. You can have, they, you, you can lead them to the place where they will have an inheritance, a portion, a share among them which are sanctified by faith in me. No one has a portion or share in Jesus until you're in Jesus, until Jesus is in you. So therefore, you have, biblically, you have the repentance you have water baptism and you have received the Holy Ghost. And those things happen after a person has come, has, their eyes have been opened. They've gone from darkness to light and they've gone from the power of Satan to the power of God. And I'm going to close with this statement. You can do all this other stuff you want to do and it all may be valid in its right place at its right time. But if the focus of the body of Christ is not on those three things. Everything else is worthless no matter how well it's done. Everything else is worthless. It's worthless. No matter how well I do it, no matter how well I preach, no matter how well we sing, no matter how well we worship, no matter how we, how well we pray and minister for people, no matter how nice our building is, no matter how good our programs are, if we're not doing these other things, we are spinning our wheels because the other is the, is that which opens the door to allow for results.
Praise God. Father, I thank you for this time together. I thank you for what you have done, what you have said. By your help and grace, I have done my best to plant the seeds that you have provided me through your spirit into the hearts and minds of this people. I commit these seeds unto you, Father, these seeds of truth and understanding and revelation. And I trust you to water them yourself, cause them to grow up and germinate and produce fruit in these lives for your kingdom's sake, for your glory's sake, for your honor's sake. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Tonight, uh, I would really recommend you get a little bit of rest. I'm going to try to do the same. Uh, Tonight, we will do the most straightforward warring that we've done this week. We will be warring tonight. The first two nights have been about Warring for you and for your burdens, but tonight we will be warring for the kingdom tonight. I got some specific direction, and I believe some specific promises connected to this warring. So get some, get some rest, get something to eat, uh, and let's be ready to go by seven. God bless you.